0: All right, what's going on guys? So today I'm chatting with Dr. Mel Davis, or I'm not sure if you're, is your name changed?
1: No, no, I kept my name.
0: Oh, you did? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, so we're gonna be talking about diet and behavior, something that I've been really interested in. So great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Do you wanna start out by just telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of what you've been involved in?
1: For sure. So um, I work for renaissance periodization, which many of your listeners may have heard of Um, my background is in neuroscience. I did neuroscience research for about a decade, Um, but at the time I was also a competitive jujitsu fighter grappler. Um, So I kind of had this science and sport dichotomy for a long time. And when I finally left uh, research in the lab and started working for RP, I was able to marry my love of science, my love of sport and just get more and more involved in how those two work together.
0: That's awesome. Are you working on any projects at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'm actually writing a book related to the topic that we're discussing today that should be out by the end of the year.
0: Oh, really? That's awesome. I I thought I heard you working on something, but I wasn't exactly sure when the actual release date was gonna be, so that's really cool. Yeah,
1: Uh, yeah.
0: So I guess we'll just jump right into it. First question would be, just to give a little bit of context, like, why is there like a some sort of psychological rationale for why behavior, why habits, and things like that are so difficult to change?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's uh, the brain is sort of set up to make our lives easier, but this the side effect of that is that in some cases it makes our life harder. So in the case of diet is a really easy example, actually, where sort of physiologically hardwired to prepare for starving right you know we evolved in times when we might not have food available in our refrigerator all the time so we evolved to sort of crave these very caloric foods so that in this day and age gets in the way of our our behavior goals, where we want to lose weight, we want to look a certain way. And we get this thing that's called in the literature, the intention behavior gap, where you want to do something really badly, but your physiology and or your habits are pushing you in the other direction. So physiology is difficult because that you can't ever really change. You just kind of have to overcome it. You're going to get food cravings when you're on a diet and things like this. There's no stopping those. And then habits are just things that the ways that our brain uh, makes our life easier. So if we can do things without thinking like if you can imagine a life with no habits, you couldn't tie your shoe and think about something else because you wouldn't have that habitual patterned motor behavior, you would have to think about every place that the shoelace was going. So it allows us to be super, super functional. But because it's such an effective brain mechanism, it can also get in the way when we don't want that particular habit to be there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've definitely struggled to <laughs> to change habits and and I think a lot of people do, especially when it comes to nutrition. And I guess I kind of wonder why nutrition is so much more difficult to change than something like exercise. I mean, you know, obviously it's it's something you have to manage more so on like a an ongoing basis versus you go to the gym, you spend an hour and then you're pretty much Good to right. Get, right.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's that the combination of, of eating habits and just the, the physiological drive to eat is a, is a strong yeah. thing. And if you're trying to lose weight, you really have to get past that and your own brain. So body and brain fighting your um, brain's other intentions.
0: Totally. So one of the things that I've always noticed as well, and I think everyone kind of hears this, you know, if you have it in the house, you're probably going to eat it. And there's a really strong compulsion, I guess that, or I shouldn't say compulsion, but like a reactive behavior when you're in different environments, when you're hanging out with certain friends and people are always like, Oh man, I was so good. But then, you know, whenever I hang out with this person or whenever I go to this place, um, so why does that happen and what sort of, I guess, behaviors and sort of, I guess, checks can you set in place to somewhat manage these, you know, reactive responses?
1: Right. So the the thing with habits, like you said, reactive is a really good word. The thing with habits is they happen without thinking, right? That's what makes them so efficient. So it's this kind of loop in your brain where you get cued by a particular context or a particular site and the next action happens without you thinking about it. So you see the cookies in your house, you grab one and eat it without even thinking. So it's this sort of this quick context reaction that happens and interrupting that is really the key to changing your habits so something like you said getting that food if you're on a diet just get the food out of the house you won't have the chance of that automatic response to the cookies happening or if you have particular context like you go to a particular restaurant with a particular friend and no matter what you eat a whole pizza and have 10 margaritas so maybe go with that friend to a different restaurant just change the context change the cues a little bit um, to interrupt that automatic response
0: one of the things that I know you talked about, at least when, when I came uh, to your presentation, I think it was, it must be two years ago now, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, when you were in Calgary, um, you talked about the cue sometimes being the the main reward. Like it's not necessarily right. fulfilling the behavior, right? So I guess to, to make sense of that, to some of the people listening, let's say you have a craving for a chocolate bar, right? If you replace that with an apple or something like that, it's more so the action that kind of creates reward after a certain period. Is that completely off or?
1: No, that's, that's right. It's a, it's a really interesting thing that happens with, with habit. You start losing the need for the reward and the action will happen even if there's no reward. So I think we've all had anecdotally the experience where we have a a compulsive reaction to eat some food and after we eat it, we're like, that wasn't even good. I didn't even like that. Why did I do that? You know, and that's that's the thing with Worst habits. They don't the ever. reward. The reward goes away once that pathway is paved in your brain. So yep. replacing the the compulsion with something else that's also pleasurable can be a really good way to divert habits in another direction.
0: Yeah, and that was something I think that I found really. Beneficial from from your talk, and then even just from a lot of the things that I had read previously, right? Um, because I think a lot of the times when people approach diet, it's from the standpoint of omission. Mm-hmm. So I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing that. Stop eating. Right. Food, stop eating fast foods. Um, and so, how how would this kind of behavior, I guess, uh, be implemented as as opposed to like omitting things? Like, what what are some of the strategies that you can do? Uh, From let's say like a food craving standpoint or or I guess more of a behavioral standpoint to maybe change up some behaviors and be a little bit more productive.
1: Yeah, that brings up a really good point for a mini tangent. Um, so something that's really interesting in behavior change is that Uh trying to eliminate a behavior is usually less successful than trying to add a more productive behavior. So if you're just saying, I'm gonna stop this, I'm gonna end this, I'm not gonna do this anymore, your chances of success are a little bit lower than if you say, you know, instead of wine seven nights a week, I'm gonna have tea six of those nights and wine on the seventh or something like that. So replacing a behavior with something else and focusing or sort of framing the behavior change in terms of adding the new behavior rather than eliminating the old one can lead to more success for whatever reason. That just seems to be um, easier for people to achieve.
0: And to be honest, that was something that I just stumbled upon completely randomly with with my own clients. Uh, I I used to find that when I try and get them to, maybe adopt a certain behavior, they, they just would struggle all the time. You know, if I say, Hey, I want you to maybe limit this or limit that it, you know, it wasn't exactly hit and miss, but I mean, it was a lot less successful than I would have liked. Whereas when I switched from that approach to, Hey, I want you to eat X amount of servings of protein per day and have right. like seven servings of veggies. If you do that, you're going to be pretty damn full and just automatically. Yeah. You're probably not going to be able to eat as much, even if you want it. Cause you're just like, Oh my God, I feel like I'm going to blow up. And, yeah. and I always thought that that was a really interesting approach. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. It bears out in the psychology too. It seems to be real, mm-hmm. real effect.
0: No, that's awesome. So you talked a little bit about food reward signaling. So, so what is that exactly and what happens like, I guess, inside the brain,
1: yeah. So it's, um, some people will have a little bit of trouble with comparing, you know, uh, overeating issues with addiction and it's not quite the same as addiction, but there's definitely some parallels. So it's very much, um, reward signaling pathways are involved. So you eat something very tasty, something high fat, high sugar, and you get a reward pathway signaling in your brain, at least initially. And then your brain sort of does this this efficiency thing i was talking about where initially you might have been like i'm hungry there's a cookie i'm going to eat the cookie and it's a slow process right whereas if you eat the cookie every time you see it eventually it's like cookie eat and there's no thought in between and this becomes a paved pathway and even when that reward where maybe you weren't even hungry this time so there's not the reward of being full after eating um, even once that's gone, that paved pathway is just so set in stone for your brains through your brain's efficiency mechanisms that you see the cookie, eat the cookie, even when you're not hungry or don't feel like a cookie or have a stomach ache.
0: Mm-hmm. And does that change at all from a more athletic population or let's say a leaner and leaner individuals to obese individuals? I've read, uh, I've read things. And I, I, I'm not exactly sure how accurate this is, but I've read things about uh, obese individuals have somewhat of a, a diminished signal, and then their the reward. Well, I don't know if "signal" is the right word, but the reward that they actually get from it kind of goes down. So, so overeating is an attempt to like compensate to to get that same reward. Right. So behavior. this is
1: why. This is why a lot of people do compare um, overeating disorders with uh, addiction because there's these parallels where, you know, you start seeking the reward despite negative consequences and despite uh, this lack of um, signaling in the brain and sort of looking to get that signal again. Whether or not that's exactly why it happens is sort of a complex topic. It's really hard, especially with humans because we can't get into their brains like we can with rats and mice, right? Um, we can't look as deeply at those molecular mechanisms, I mean, precise signaling mechanisms, but there seems to be a very, very similar sort of process uh, between that and uh, addiction to dr- actual drugs that signal the reward system directly.
0: When it comes to setting goals then uh, for an individual who's losing, looking to lose weight or build muscle or whatever it might be, how do you differentiate between like a well-structured goal and a poorly structured goal?
1: So it definitely depends on the individual. So something very interesting in the literature is that if you take someone who has a decent, let's say someone has a decent understanding of macros, they've done a diet or two before, they go to the gym, they eat fairly healthy and they want to lose weight. For this person, making an extremely specific goal, time limited, exact weight changes per week is a great idea and then following that plan. On the other hand, if you take someone who's never really done a diet, they don't really understand how macros work, this is all, all new to them. If you give them that precise plan, they're probably going to fall apart. So when someone is very new to a topic or arena, an arena, having them work on um, doing more learning or process goals is a much better idea than having them do a, an outcome focused very precise goal so maybe instead of the exact weight loss they would focus on learning three different strategies for meal prep and understanding macros and calories without even trying to lose weight at first and the interesting thing is that person might actually end up losing more weight on that learning focus process without even a weight loss goal than they would if you gave them very precise weight loss goals just because it's so overwhelming and so new that it becomes too challenging to be feasible.
0: Right, that makes sense. And I think most people who have started a diet have experienced that you know on some some level. So personally, when you start working with a client, how do you determine their their start point and the rate of progress that they're capable of and, and willing to make? Yeah,
1: I think something really important to do is, first of all, sort of diet history with them. You know, how, how much have you tried to lose weight? How have you tried to lose weight? What's your sort of background in your fitness journey, just to determine, you know, how, how specific does this, can this person's goals be? Do we need them to do a little period of maintenance and learning first, or can they jump right into the diet? And then also another really important thing to assess and I think people get so gung-ho and forget this so easily is you know what's going on in your life what is your what's realistic for you even if you know everything there is to know about macros and nutrition and you're going to start a diet if you have you know three vacations two work travel trips and uh, you know your sister's wedding coming up in the next three months it's maybe not going to be a great time to start a diet even if you have all the knowledge and tools to do it so just assessing where they are in their fitness journey and where they are in their life right now and what their obstacles are like what trade-offs can they realistically make to get to their goal
0: yeah that's something that i've had to talk a lot about with my athletes as well i mean i'm sure you've experienced the same thing where you're talking to someone and they're like oh well I lost all this weight before when I did this diet and now I just can't seem to do it. And it's like, right. Okay. Well, what's different, you know, like you, you, you were a kid and you didn't have any responsibilities and now you're a mother of two and you know, you're trying to get from a national level to an international level or whatever it might be, you know, and it's just like, there's so much going on. That's just different. Um, even right now I'm, I'm very, very lucky because, I don't have a regular job. Like I literally right. go to training. I come home, I eat, I sleep for a couple hours. I wake up, I eat, do some work. I eat, I nap again. And then yeah. I usually do more work and then I go to bed and then I do it all over again. And so it's like, yeah. I have the opportunity to eat and sleep as much as I need to, to, to right. recover from my training. Whereas I the next guy, yeah, it's like how many people have that? And it's like pretty much none it's sort
1: of like the life mrv concept like what yeah yeah exactly volume of anything you can do in a day right you Mm -hmm. you can't just add things infinitely no matter what um sort of different aspects of your life they all take up your time
0: yeah and it's really difficult sometimes to explain that to people because you'll have that conversation they're like i know but and it's like no, there's no, there's no, but like it's just you have to accept the way it is, you know.
1: But on Instagram, um, they said if I just get up a little earlier, I'll yeah, be older. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. The reason why you're not thirty pounds lighter is because you don't wake up at five a.m. like the one percenters. Right. <laughs> um. So when you're working with clients, then it, it sounds like communication is a really big part of uh, of that process. So yeah, how how important is social support then, whether it's a coach, whether it's family, a spouse?
1: Yeah, that's, it's, it's super, super important. And I, I really encourage I've had many clients in the past who sort of didn't want to tell you know, their friends or family that they were dieting for whatever reason, sometimes, you know, lots of failed diets in the past, they feel embarrassed to tell people that they're trying again, or they just don't want to sort of be shamed for not eating and drinking and doing all the things that everyone else is doing. But it's incredibly helpful just to, get the support of your friends and family, even if you have to have a private sit down where you're like, Hey, this is important to me, can you please support me in my goal, you know, that that usually convinces people to be supportive and be there for you. And it in the literature, having uh, people around you who support you and, you know, give you positive feedback and congratulate you on your wins is really helpful in reaching any kind of goal.
0: Mm-hmm. And so do you find that there's ever a kind of like, some people Obviously, might like a little bit more of uh, like constructive criticism, probably a little more criticism than, than construction, so than constructive, but then other people, like you were saying, need a lot more support. Like, how, how do you differentiate between the two uh, individuals that you're working with?
1: Yeah, so uh, very often, at least in my experience, and this is a less, less data based response and more just anecdotal experience based response, in my experience, a lot of times when you get the people who start out and they're they're very happy in their lives already. This is just sort of a frosting on the cake thing, the weight loss. And they tend to be very optimistic and not super worried if one week doesn't go perfectly. You know, maybe they have a barbecue and that's more important to them. And they just sort of brush it off their shoulder when they don't lose as much that week and say, hey, it was worth it. Those kind of people you can usually say like, you know, if you want to go faster, this is what you'll need to do. You can be a little more um, harsh and direct with them, because they tend to just brush that off their shoulder too, and just be optimistic and carry on. The people who are coming in, and they're really stressed about the weight loss, and they're really worried. A lot of times that overlaps with the same people who sort of need a little more handholding, a little more support, and you know, positive affirmation. that um, they're going the right direction and, and doing well. Mm-hmm. But again, and so, that's my anecdotal experience, not necessarily science based.
0: No, that makes sense. And so how much time do you usually, I guess a lot for when, when you're looking at trying to change someone's behaviors, when you're looking Mm -hmm. at establishing new goals, like how far out in advance are you planning for? And then also, uh, how are you communicating that with, with your athlete or not necessarily with the athletes, but with your clients? Mm -hmm. Um, like, here's what you can expect. Here's roughly like how long it takes to do this, um, as part of like a development into your actual lifestyle.
1: In my experience, a lot of people who come in, and I can tell they're, you know, kind of new to dieting, they're not as familiar with all the concepts, and they're struggling when they start the diet, it's very hard to convince someone who's just signed up and paid you for weight loss to, to not lose weight and to learn for a few months, you know. So often I sort of, I'll use that first diet as a teaching opportunity, so three months of sort of teaching, and very often they don't lose very much weight but at the end they still feel like they know a whole lot and then they do, you know, three months of maintenance. And then very often after that six months of sort of learning and understanding and getting their meal prep habits going and their favorite diet foods and all that stuff figured out at the end of the six months, the next cut is very often incredible. So a- anecdotally it takes a sort of newer person to fitness about six months to get in the groove and really be effective. And I think the newer you are, the longer it might
0: take. Yeah, I've had a really similar experience with my clients as well. Like I, I tend to try and focus on the same things, like behaviors, mm-hmm. and try and prioritize those over sometimes your, your outcomes necessarily. So yeah. I yeah. might say something like, Hey, like let's let's track your adherence, you mm-hmm. know, to, to these goals. And so let's say they have I don't know, two goals that they're going to be working towards each week or, or two behaviors. So one behavior might be, you know, eat X amount of veggies per day, go to the gym three to four times per week or something like that. Yeah. And then you can track exactly. the first the first two weeks. It's like, okay, your adherence is at like 30%, but then by the time week three and week four hit, their adherence is up to like maybe 50, 55% and then right. it's progressing. and I found too especially with weight loss clients that might be a little more sensitive to that sort of thing. Um, it takes their focus away from the outcome, away from the weight and so it's a little less personal. Yeah, that's really smart. And it's a little bit more like actionable because you like you can't you can't be like okay, I'm going to lose 20 pounds this week. It's just like right. that's not a that's not a behavior. That's that's not something you can control, right? Whereas right. you know if you have behaviors, it's like the behaviors will um, will potentiate you reaching your goals. Exactly, But, yeah. but having just like oh, a goal. But they're much
1: easier to, to change yeah. and observe the changes more quickly, totally.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I found that to important. be, for sure, I found that to be really, really helpful for, for a lot of clients as well because it just puts into perspective like how hard they're actually working. Like I had one uh, athlete not too long ago told me, he's like, hey, I wanna be uh, one of the strongest uh, men on the planet, like I, I wanna <laughs> deadlift over 800 pounds and I want to do this. And I was like, okay, cool. Here's where your adherence is. And, and because we do track all these things and it's like, right, right. and here's what you're saying you need to be. I was like, I can tell you right now, there's not a chance in the world that you're ever going to get right. there behaving this way, you know? And, and I think it's a really cool thing because you can show someone that they're like, Oh, either maybe I'm setting my goals. Maybe my goals aren't actually my goals or maybe I need to change something if I do want to reach them. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It
1: helps tie the outcome to the behavior too. Yeah. So even though we all sort of know that logically, when you are trying to lose weight and you feel like you're trying, but you're not losing, and then you start tracking your adherence and you're like, oh, I was only forty percent adherent, and then you get up to seventy percent adherent and you start seeing changes, and you get up to ninety and you see more changes, and you're like, oh, okay, there's a relationship here, direct relationship between how I behave and what outcome I get, and that's really really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. And so when I guess coming back to, to data tracking them, like what kind of metrics are you keeping track of? And I know it's going to change from one athlete to another, but is there like a general, okay, these things are generally going to be pretty important for people wanting to lose weight. These things are going to be, you know, important for people who are uh, a little bit more type A. These are going to be for people who are a little bit more new, anything like that?
1: Yeah. So very similar to you for particularly my newer clients. Some of the things I start with is, you know, how many times a week did you eat veggies? How many, day? how many meals, if they're really new, how many meals in the day did you have protein? And how many times did you make it to your planned um, exercise? Because those tend to be kind of sort of some fundamental um, aspects that build so much more quickly. Like if you try to tell someone, like how many times did you go over carbs? it's not as a fundamental a thing to go, you know, plus or minus carbs, but if you're getting protein and getting veggies, it's harder to overeat. You know, your muscles muscle supported. And if you're getting to the gym, especially the new people are gonna have those body comp changes. So those are three of the ones that I'm really big on for the newer people. Um, For people who are a little more experienced and a little more refined, we do some sort of more precise things. You know, how many meals this week were you on target for your macros? Um, how many of your lifts were you on target for your you know, volume and load increases and things like
0: that. Coming back to environment and coming back to like goals, um, I know you mentioned in the seminar that uh, that I saw, um, you talked about specific timeframes for, for establishing goals, right? So people have five-year uh-huh. plans, 10-year plans, one-year plans, right. six-month goals, things like that. Um, what are your recommendations on timelines as far as goals are concerned? and how could you utilize those timelines to kind of structure your environment, to kind of ramp up into it?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I try to tell my clients that having the the distal goals are great, you know? I wanna lose 100 pounds or I wanna do a fitness show or whatever it is, these things that are over a year away. Um, Those are great, but those are more of like a vision board. What you want to have are some proximal goals or sort of shorter term goals that are small enough that you can not only sort of visualize that actual change, it doesn't seem so fantasy, um, and you can build a direct action plan to get from point A to point B. So having both are good because the, the, you know, the distal goals are inspiring and they're sort of help motivate you at certain times. But the proximal goals are probably even more important because within those you can build your action plan and your behavior changes in order to work up to it. And I usually recommend for those to be one to three months long to fit within the context of a sort of more fuzzy, broad one-year plan. Um, It's obviously fine to have dreams outside of a year from now, but that tends to be harder to really implement. You don't know what you're going to be doing in three and a half years, you know, in April. So you can have those, but focus on the, the shorter term and within a year um, length for your planning and behavior change.
0: And so how often do you find when someone sets a goal and they start working towards it, that they actually pivot from that initial goal?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that happens a lot to people in fitness. I think there's a a strong tendency, especially right now, you know, the availability of social media and looking at other people and what they're doing. And I think people, um, forget to consider sort of the trade-offs and things that they'll have to make to get to that they see you know someone on Instagram looking awesome and they're like I want to do that well you're going to have to train you know 6 times a week and be dieting for 75% of the year to look like that and maintain it is that what you actually want so when they sort of realize what it takes to get to a certain thing a lot of people will say you know what I'm going to I'm going to readjust my priorities I really enjoy doing these other things that would be precluded by that plan. And um, I think that's a really important part of goal setting is to assess what you actually want for you within the context of what it will take to get there. Mm -hmm. So I often have, um, people will say, you know, when they start a diet, they want to make max progress. You know, everyone does. What's the max weight I can lose. That's what I want to lose. And I usually say, you know what, let's do the first month on a moderate progress diet. And then we'll assess at a month and i very rarely have had anyone at that month point say like let's take it up a notch almost always they're like you know what i'm pretty comfortable and i'm losing weight let's just keep doing this so it's it's good to get get in the trenches a little before you make a decision on on your goals and understand what you'll have to give up
0: yeah agreed and that was definitely something that uh i used to do a lot when i first got into Weightlifting. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna be the best in the world. No big deal. Probably take me like three <laughs> years, I think." Like, I just had no concept of what that meant, and I had no concept of genetics or anything like that. Um, And I think a lot of people really do that, and then kind of get shoot themselves in the foot because, like you said, once you realize the magnitude of what you're actually after, it's just like, "Oh my god!" Like that's what yeah. it's gonna take. Like. You know, yeah, this will be your
1: whole life sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Whereas, whereas what you're saying is is a lot more moderate. It's a lot more like, hey, this is gonna be really hard. Why don't we just start with this and see what happens? And then if we're getting good results, we can that. More. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really smart approach because at least in my experience, I found that a lot of the times when I have people who come to me and they're really, really gung-ho, I'd say more often than not, those are the people who go super hard right out of the gate and then also fizzle out really quickly.
1: Fizzle out, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Motivation
1: and... is great, but it's not really sustainable.
0: So why is you that? Don't,
1: you don't stay motivated for a full three-month diet, and generally <laughs> <laughs> so it's just sort of uh, discipline and habits that, that take you the rest of the way when the motivation fades.
0: Mm-hmm. So can you explain that a little bit more? Because that's something that a lot of people, I think, uh, want to know about is, is motivation and why that is the case like why it does fade but then some people say it's super important like you have Tony Robbins who you know awesome guy love the stuff that he puts out sometimes but then also I think maybe spins things a little bit um (laughs) suggesting that you can do a a dance or some sort of you know um ritual and then just inspire yourself and be super motivated at any given time
1: yeah I mean I think there are some people who are capable of that but I I would say that that sounds like a lot more work than just building a bunch of habits that become automatic that you just sort of switch on or turn up or try dial down depending on what you're doing, right? So um, that sort of brings us to willpower too. So motivation, pretty fickle. It shows up when you're feeling good, usually when you're not on a diet, when you're not training real hard, that motivation is is really high. Deep into a diet, it, it dwindles quite a bit or when you're, you know, when you're, you are peak week of a long lifting phase, your motivation is is dwindling. But if you have really good habits and in your mind, you just don't miss a workout on peak week, then you do it anyway. You get up and you go to the gym and you're like, "Ugh, this sucks. And you go anyway, cause that's your habit. Right? So willpower is a sort of similar thing. Um, there was a lot, a lot of literature for a long time suggesting that willpower was something that you trained and it was sort of a limited resource, but I think the most compelling literature right now suggests that willpower is more like an emotion. It sort of ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's not. There's a lot of factors that influence it. So you can override all of those things with really good habits, right? If you don't have any motivation, you don't have any willpower, but you have a really ingrained habit to eat well and go to the gym, you're going to ride that a lot easier than trying to spark a new new motivation or, you know, rejuvenate your willpower on a really rough day.
0: Awesome. So it, it sounds like those are more so effective adjuncts that you can add to, you know, existing set of, of, uh, behaviors from what you're absolutely saying about,
1: right? Yeah. When you're motivated and you have willpower, it's great. It helps a lot, but having ha- good habits to fall back on is, um, a lot more reliable.
0: Mm-hmm. So what sort of factors or what sort of role does genetics uh, play on things like willpower and maybe, the degree of, of difficulty that someone's going to experiencing, what that someone's going to experience when they try to develop a new set of habits or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, maybe change existing behavior.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to research something like that. Cause there's so many, you know, nature and nurture factors intertwined. It's hard to, to piece those out in humans. My guess would be that like most things, there's a very strong genetic component. Um, Some people are just going to be better at willpower. They're going to be better at staying positive and being motivated, but I'm also a big proponent of being able to change. And I think that practice building habits and getting yourself dedicated to that process can help you um, make up for what you're lacking in in the genetics arena there. So I think that um, it does play a role. Some things are always easier for some people, but, you can um you can reframe things for yourself you can start to change how you do things and be better at doing them whatever that avenue is whether it's building really good habits or being really good at remotivating yourself or um framing things in a more positive intrinsically driven way and stuff like that
0: coming back to what you said earlier on the in the episode um, about the intention behavior gap Um, how would you go about closing that gap and and really making some fundamental changes?
1: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely. So, again, the intention behavior gap is when you're like, I really want to start working out at the gym five times a week, but you just don't do it. And you want to do it, you start doing it, you stop. And I think the most important um, way or the most most effective way of bridging that gap is to build a habit. Get yourself set up. You know, um, you can do things like, my plans to go to the gym five days a week. If you go twice and you usually went zero, congratulate yourself and try to go three times the next week, set your gym clothes up outside your doors and implementation intention. So you the motivated you makes it easier for future less motivated you to do the thing, right? Like all your gym clothes are clean, they're in your bag. You got your shaker in there already. You get up in the morning, you're like, well, everything's ready. I don't have an excuse. I have to go to the gym, um, writing little notes for yourself, like, If my work meeting goes late, I will go to the gym anyway, things like that so that you plan for the obstacles and sort of tell your future self how you'll overcome them. That can be really helpful. Um, Give yourself a reward after doing things that you want to do. You know, if I go to the gym, I get to watch, you know, binge watch the show for an hour afterwards, something like that while I eat my dinner. Um, So just any way that you can sort of make it easier for yourself to do the thing and build a, a habit. The more often you actually go, the more easy it will be to go, because the more automatic it will be.
0: Mm-hmm. So how important is actually giving yourself those rewards? I Because that, that's something that I found as well, um, both for myself and for my clients, where you kind of get into this mode where you believe that in order to reach something, you have to have this, you know, pure ascetic lifestyle. You can never touch candy right. bars <laughs> again. You'll never have cravings. And it's just not really the case. So, how how can you implement rewards? And also, if you could touch on, you know, how people often incorporate things like cheat meals or cheat days, and and mm-hmm. what sort of benefit does that have? And what are some of the dangers of that as well? Sorry, I know yes. I know those like eight questions at once. Yeah,
1: no, that's. <laughs> I think I got them all. Catch me if I miss one. Um, so rewarding yourself is just, you know, there's a lot of different strategies for changing your behavior. Rewarding yourself is one thing you can do. And, you know, you can change that reward depending on the person. Some people might be like, you know, I'm going to eat my carbs as Fruit Loops after I lift. It's the same amount of carbs, but I really like Fruit Loops. So if I lift, I get those. Some people might be, you know, a relaxation thing, like I get to watch a show or I get to do something I usually feel guilty doing. Um, but since I lifted, I won't feel guilty doing it. It can be something like, you have an Excel Excel spreadsheet, and for each day that you're supposed to lift, you put a little check mark on it, and that can be really satisfying to people to see that little check mark and see how many times they've done what they said they were going to do. That can be a very reinforcing reward. So you can get creative with what what gets you going, what will make you feel rewarded and encouraged to do the behavior again. Um, In terms of using food as a reward, I would usually discourage that. I think you can use, um, like I said, like I'll eat my carbs as this thing that would usually make me feel kind of bad as a reward. But if you're just saying like I get to you know binge on pizza if I do this, not always good just for keeping away from food dysfunction. But it depends on the individual as well. In terms of cheat meals in general, I think that that's also super individual. Some people can do a diet have you know halfway through. Have a cheat meal and they feel great, it reinvigorates them psychologically, it motivates them to continue the diet. It's a really small setback in the grand scheme of things and it can work out really well. Other people, they have that one cheat meal and it sends them and you know just down a spiral and they can't stop um, because those really, really tasty foods tend to initiate new cravings. And if you're someone who is caves to cravings more easily than others, then it might end up being a bigger problem than a help to you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think yeah. one of the things here is that all this stuff is super individual and it definitely depends on the person's psychology and you know what gets them.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely in the second camp where <laughs> I find I, I have to stay away from that food or else I just end up going a little overboard. But uh yeah. if <laughs> if uh if I'm dieting, I'm usually fine. I don't usually have any cravings, but if I do go out and I do have something like a pizza or pasta or whatever, oh. then yeah, it's this weird cascade of just terrible behaviors that I've developed yeah. over time. <laughs> way, it's I like, would well, just yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah ex- that's exactly what it is. It's like, well, I had a slice of pizza, so I may as well eat an entire tub of ice cream and five chocolate. Right, yeah. <laughs>
1: <'Cause> it's, <laughs>
0: it's, you know, it's pretty much, it's pretty much over for me. <laughs>
1: yeah. And there's definitely some literature for that, you know, eating, um, tastier foods makes you want more tastier foods that's definitely something that's been observed in science but there's also people for whom the cheat meal really does help them gives them a little break and they just carry on just fine from there so there's there's you know data is general data is based on averages and there are people who are outliers so you really have to take that into account as well there's also people who think they're outliers and aren't so another thing to consider when working with clients no i can have a cheat meal i'll be fine and then they're not
0: yeah, yeah. I find most people think they're outliers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm unique, trust me.
1: Was it Mike and James' um, professor in grad school, I think it was him that said, you're special just like everyone else.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, that's awesome. So looking at uh, things like self-determination theory, um, mm-hmm. how does that affect someone's behavior and someone's, I guess, awareness around kind of what it is that they need to do and how they can actually go about executing on those, on those behaviors.
1: Yeah. So a lot of, I just read a funny article. Hold on. I want to pull up the name for you too, because I think it just will apply really well. Um, just, uh, Oh yeah. So it's, it's a, from a behavior conference, a psychology and behavior conference. Um, and it's called all models are wrong, but some are useful. So that is to say that all of the, the ways that we try to systematize behavior change are wrong, but each one can have a useful aspect and the, the whole transcript of the meeting goes on to sort of say like, yeah, we can divide these, these different behaviors, these different means of changing behavior and try to systematize it and build these models, these wheels and these charts and these flow charts and things. But there's so much variability and so many different ways that individual variables affect best practice and best choice that we kind of need to use those just as very loose um, roadmaps and not necessarily anything to to stick to completely. I think sort of related um, To your question, something that I found super interesting, that seems to be really important. We all we've all heard of like intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, right? Mm -hmm. And you hear a lot about how intrinsic motivation is more important. And it absolutely does seem to be stronger. But extrinsic motivation is also very effective in some circumstances and very ineffective in other circumstances. So that's just sort of an example of how these models and these ideas can be so different in different contexts. Sorry, I went off on a little bit of a, a tangent there. <laughs> did that an- come close to answering your question or at least addressing
0: no, it? No, it did. And I guess just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying about uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic. Um, so I, I literally am just finishing up writing a, a paper right now that does go in you know, relative amount of depth uh, on those things as well. And so there's two different types of um, extrinsic motivation and like Essentially, one would be something that is uh, more akin to like controlled autonomy, or sorry, mm-hmm. uh, where, or sorry, controlled motivation, not controlled autonomy, where, you know, maybe you're trying to get good grades because your parents are forcing you. So it's an wow. extrinsic motivation where it's like negative, or it could be negative because maybe you have resentment and it's just probably not going right. to lead to the best outcomes versus having an extrinsic motivational factor, like, uh, I want to get good grades because it's going to, you know, potentially set me up for a good career and, and things like that. And that ends up kind of becoming intrinsic because you sort right. of take yeah. it on as your own. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think
1: you can do that reframing very often mm-hmm. with people. Like they say, I want to look good for this reason. You're like, okay, how can yeah. you frame that in the context of your personal values? So then you have sort of both motivators working together, which is ideal.
0: Totally, and a lot of the times that does happen with, with fitness. Like, honestly, I started fighting and lifting weights because I got beat up one time, and I was like, "I'm I'm gonna get this dude." And I mean, here I am, like eight yeah, years, years for lifting weights.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm I'm still waiting. I'm not quite there yet, you know. I'm, yeah. not quite, I'm not quite there to Fight, um, you know, and I mean, at some point, things just kind of shift, and and it does just become this really um, intrinsically satisfying process. Uh, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Um, what, did, what did you say a moment ago, though? You said something about values?
1: Yeah, so sort of um, something I encourage clients to do is to tie if their motivator is more extrinsic, like, can you tie that extrinsic motivator to your values? Like say, I am working really hard to get a promotion at my job, right? The extrinsic value is, or the extrinsic thing is that they want to make more money and have a higher status at their job. But then you can say, why don't we reframe that? like I admire people who work hard and achieve a lot in their careers. And I want to be one of those people. So that's why I'm pushing for this promotion, just to give them an intrinsic framing to go along with their extrinsic uh, reward.
0: I know that there's a lot of people who talk a lot about affirmations and they post these really inspiring, you know, motivational quotes and things like that. Um, Have you Are you familiar with any of the the research on positive affirmations and and self-efficacy and things like that?
1: Yes, So the self-efficacy stuff is kind of interesting. It's sort of a a chicken and an egg thing. There is a very strong correlation between self-efficacy and success in any given endeavor, but whether or not success causes self-efficacy or self-efficacy causes success or both, I would tend to believe both. Is sort of unclear, like the directionality and the causality are not totally clear, but they are very strongly associated um, in terms of positive affirmations. I think there's quite a bit of literature to suggest that At the very least avoiding negative affirmations is really important. Um, and you would, you know, venture to guess then that positive affirmations are are helpful. So I think this is something I talked about actually in Calgary saying things like, oh, I'm so fat or I'm this or I am that and sort of framing yourself, putting yourself in a box, more or less can be really damaging. And um, I think he was there was a guy actually at at that Calgary seminar who had a great story that fit into this perfectly. And he said, he was like the big buff guy. Um, The other big buff guy, there are several Andrew. Uh, Yeah, I think so.
0: Andrew Coates. Yeah.
1: He said, no, not him. It was a third big buff guy. It was a big buff guy seminar, basically. (laughs) Um, He said when he was a kid, he was uh, really chubby and in his teenage years, he used to tell people like, oh, I'm the happy fat guy. And he's like, now that I'm not overweight and I'm like really jacked and lean. He's like, I realize looking back Saying I was a happy fat guy prevented me from changing because then I'd have to admit to all the people that I told I was a happy fat guy that I was actually the unhappy fat guy, and I'd have to live with the fact that I was lying to them to to sort of cover for for the fact that I wanted to change and didn't feel I could. so I just thought that was a great example of how um framing yourself can trap you
0: yeah i I remember that, but I don't remember i actually I, I do remember someone saying that, but I don't remember who it was. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> kind of an interesting story. I'm terrible for that. Like I, I call myself fat all the time. I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a very good power lifter. Like I'm, I'm fat, blah, blah. <laughs> and someone was like, Oh, when will you be happy with your physique? And I'm like, mm, when I look like Simeon Panda. <laughs> and, and for any of you guys who don't know, Simeon Panda is a natural, and I'm putting that in parentheses, yeah. so doubted, uh bodybuilding athlete or physique athlete who's like, four percent year round and has like one of the most ridiculous physiques i've ever seen in my life um yeah but, he
1: definitely has genetics and probably some other things on his side
0: yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah so we're, we're actually kind of coming up to that 50 minute mark i know you mentioned that you did uh have a couple of time constraints so i want to be respectful of your time just have one last question and essentially <laughs> that's um what's one opinion you have that sort of goes against grain, or maybe is a little bit controversial.
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Let me think. I probably have a few. Maybe not all of them should be spoken about on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, I think uh, for me, the this might be controversial, might might not be, but I think that the the divide in the fitness industry right now that that I don't think is a divide. So there's sort of the one side that is. Anti diet culture thinks everything about diet and fitness is wrong and you know health, you can be healthy at every size versus the side that says, you know, like, Oh, no, there's a certain weight where you're definitely not healthy. And being fit is the most important thing. And if you choose to eat terribly and be overweight, you're wrong. I think that divide is wrong. I think I'm very, I have a very libertarian perspective on the fitness industry. And I think that if you want to make certain trade offs, whatever they are for your happiness in your life, they shouldn't be judged. And I think it's perfectly fine to diet or not diet. And I don't think um, I just don't think that that divide or that argument should even exist, because people should have the liberty to choose to either hurt themselves in the weight room or in sport or hurt themselves by eating delicious foods for their life. You know, we all hurt ourselves in certain ways for the things that we love and want to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, um, I just don't think that argument makes any sense. There shouldn't
0: be two sides. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, I'd say that for the most part, i probably agree with that because a lot of the times, like when you pit these two arguments against each other, it's like, well, those are the arguments and it kind of prevents, it, it ends up just being a straw man. It's like, well, those aren't the only two options. Right. You know,
1: and um, you can do a little of each, you can diet it, for a while, and then you can eat whatever you want for a while and forget about diet, culture and physique. You know, there's no, there's no reason that you have to pick a camp.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. So where can people find you?
1: Um, mainly on Instagram. My account is regressive underload. Um, I also am on RP, Renaissance Periodization's website. I have some books there. The habit book will be coming out there and I'll be, I'll be pumping that on Instagram. If you're interested in reading it, um, you can find out information on where to pick it
0: up there. Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. So that's all gonna be linked up in the show notes, guys. You can definitely go check her out, give her a follow on Instagram. Uh, she puts out lots of really, really great content all the time. Uh, Mel, thanks so much for jumping on. I really appreciate you taking Thank the time. on you so And uh, it's been a really yeah. great chat. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at stackedstrength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly. So make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.